I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. The history and science behind diagnosing addiction, and is it time to broaden its definition? I had a similar sort of belief system standing in my way, this sort of us-them dichotomy that addiction is something really extreme, the absolute farthest end of the spectrum of human disorder. It was, it was really important to me to relax that notion and to recognize how addiction exists in all of us. And it's not something scary. It's not something that makes me broken or diseased or different. And later, should treatment programs like AA embrace a greater sensitivity towards race, politics, and sobriety? I just didn't want to be told that what I was feeling in response to what was happening in the world was an outside issue, because it's it's not. Like, if it's an issue that affects my ability to stay sober, it's not an outside issue. Defining, treating, and deepening our understanding of addiction. That's coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Addiction is not a new phenomenon to Americans. Heroin, alcohol, meth, opioids, these substances have been complicit in destroying far too many lives in recent years. Historically, addiction is nothing new either. Some of our earliest South Asian texts, dating back thousands of years, describe men with gambling addictions. The Greek philosopher Aristotle describes those who are unable to act in their own best interest as having, quote, incontinence of will. Modern research has brought with it new schools of thought. Compulsive and addictive behaviors began to be labeled as a disease, a mental disorder treatable with psychiatric medications and therapies. But do we need to hit the pause button and broaden that definition? What role does society, race, suffering, and abuse play in addictive behavior? Carl Eric Fisher is an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University and author of the new book called The Urge, Our History of Addiction. He says it's time for a deeper understanding when it comes to defining and treating addiction. And as we'll find out in just a moment, his perspective comes from firsthand experience. Well, Carl Eric Fisher, welcome to Life Examine. We appreciate the time. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. Uh, you know, I, this is such a, a big and important topic, and I'm so glad we can cover it together. And, and I first want to start with your very personal story in this, which is being in your late 20s, um, making your way through medical school, but finding yourself in, in the throes of addiction yourself. And I wonder if you could kind of bring us back to that time. Um, at one point, you were checked into Bellevue Hospital. What, what was happening in your life? Because I, I sense this was so formative into who you would become later on. Yeah, finding myself in the throes is a good description because I was hiding that fact from myself that I was struggling with addiction. Around the time that I started having my worst problems, I was also winning awards, graduating from medical school, went to my top choice training program in psychiatric medicine, and I was engaged in all of this restless never-ending search for external validation, in part to prove to myself that I, I didn't have addiction, that I wasn't struggling in the way I was. Mm. But the undercurrent was I was still drinking, I was still using stimulants like Adderall in a really unhealthy way, and I just couldn't keep up the double life at a certain point. And the, the apex, or maybe the nadir of the whole situation was uh, I had a break from residency and went on a completely unhinged binge, alcohol, Adderall, to the point where I became manic. I became I had a full-blown manic episode. Mm. It was psychotic in the sense that I was in the middle of a total break from reality. And uh, thankfully, I had the wherewithal even within that um, episode to call out for help. And it, I was lucky that I'm a white guy and I was in the West Village in Manhattan, a relatively upscale neighborhood. And... So when the NYPD knocked on the door, they took me to the hospital rather than booking me or fighting with me yeah. or who knows what else. And um, that experience was, um, it wasn't like a single moment where all of a sudden the light turned on and I realized, hey, I have a problem with addiction. It was like my, my reality was fracturing because I had built this self-conception as a high-achieving guy. And I had to reformulate my understanding of who I was and what addiction meant to me. In the book, you, you talk about how there were addictive behaviors in your family and a lot of drinking as well. Um, 
we know now that these things can all be interrelated, but can you share a little bit about your family structure and system? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the gifts of writing this book was to come to terms with that history because like a lot of people who grew up in a, a family with alcoholism or a family with other types of traumas or addictive behaviors, I didn't really understand it when I was going through it. It was only later on reflection that I realized some of those dynamics. I was an only child. I grew up in pretty standard upper middle class household in North Jersey, the suburb of New York. And both my parents uh, were brilliant and also both of them really struggled with alcoholism. And one of the things that I remember that I only, I only really understand now or that I only have come into a more fuller understanding talking to my parents and processing this and understanding it through the process of writing is um, just how much addiction was a character in our family growing up, hmm. even though I didn't recognize it at the time. I never really knew who I'd be getting. Uh, my, my parents were I, I, and are fantastic folks. My mother is dead now, but um, sometimes they were joyful and playful and really engaged. It wasn't a scene of abject deprivation. Yeah. I had a very good life by a lot of measures. But then part of my own uh, process of recovery is is coming to terms with and really acknowledging for myself that there were really difficult parts too, like yeah. them sometimes being checked out or sometimes them being angry or just the simple fact of not knowing who I was going to get. And that stretches back as far as I could remember. And then the more uh, dramatic element, which I just touch on in the book, is that uh, my father eventually had to go away to rehab. Uh, my parents split. My mom had a lot of problems with that, but uh, still was able to construct an identity for herself that she was a university professor and maybe she has problems, but she's not as bad as my father. And so therefore, in her mind, as best I understood it from talking to her while she was still alive, was that addiction was something that happened over there. Yeah. Like, I'm not an addict. Look at your father. And um, I had a similar sort of uh, belief system standing in my way, this sort of us-them dichotomy that addiction is something really extreme or that it's a, um, the absolute farthest end of the spectrum of human disorder. And um, it, was, it was really important to me to relax that notion and to recognize how addiction exists in all of us. And uh, it's, not, it's not something scary. It's not something that makes me broken or diseased or different. It's interesting how, right, how, how the mind wants to play tricks there and say, but look, if I'm, if I'm successful, it doesn't matter if I have six drinks every night, right? I mean, people mm -hmm. look at me as a successful person. And I, I sense that's what your parents were thinking. That's what you were thinking uh, as you were a successful young doctor on the rise. And um, that, that was probably a very uh, persuasive argument for a long time for you. Yeah, it was. And it's, it's been a persuasive argument throughout history, really, to try to demarcate addiction or to create that kind of us-them dichotomy, a lot of times in service of racism, a lot of times in the service of other forms of oppression, uh, but also just otherwise to get our hands around something that is a really mystifying and challenging phenomenon. And so naturally, and I don't think it's always a devious or even necessarily all that misguided, but... Um, Sometimes it, it's more trouble than it's worth to try to try to demarcate addiction, to try to say, uh, this is where it starts, this is where it ends, uh, I have it, you don't, yeah. to try to turn it into a sort of entity. And um, one of the things I was trying to do, uh, just in my work and in the book, was to, to hit the pause button and to say, what do we really know? What do we mean when we say disease? What do we mean when we say addiction at all? Um, where does that idea come from? And uh, how can we, how can we uh, deepen our understanding of it a little better? One of the things that that separates this book um, from from a lot of other books about addiction is you're you're very curious in early roots of how we understand addiction, how it's been defined, where it shows up, and I wonder if you could just take us on a little uh, history tour of of some of the interesting things you found when you reached back hundreds, if not thousands, of years into this idea of addiction. Oh, sure. Yeah, it was a real uh, experience going back there mm -hmm. and came across some really surprising stories. The The earliest example is of a, someone with gambling addiction that uh, is very clearly described by 
my understanding, in the Rig Veda, one of the oldest wow. scriptures from ancient India. And it's notable to me because it's gambling. It's not a substance addiction, but it, it so clearly describes the descent of a gambler through all of this poetic and allegorical language about uh, the way he was dicing, the kind of Indian dice that they used was really seeds that you throw into a pit. And his gambling addiction was like descending into the pit of being controlled by the dice themselves. Yeah. Uh, and so it left me really convinced that addiction is real. It, I think we can get into trouble when we're too arrogant or we're too definitive about what we think addiction is. And then, but here's the paradox, here's the tension that at the same time, uh, addiction is a real phenomenon. And if you've had it and if you've seen it in your life, you know that it's there. And it, it was really, um, in a way, reassuring to find so many examples across history. Like, for example, examples from Aristotle's philosophy around self-control or examples from a, a Chinese poet a few hundred years after that, or then examples from different uh, Euro-Asian cultures after that. It's, it, it convinced me that there, there really is a there there, even while we have to be very cautious and very humble about what, what the thing is. So it, it seems as if even go, I mean, the Rig Veda, fascinating. I mean, that's, that's thousands of years old. I mean, this is early, early stuff. Um, mm -hmm. that, that whatever that is in us, that addictive part of us, it, it is just, it's a real concrete thing that's been there for a long time. I mean, I didn't know that people gambled thousands of years ago, but of course we did, right? Just as that exists in today's world too, there is some human impulse in us that is attracted to this stuff, gets pulled into it. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I think that's, that's, that's really interesting. Were there any other like things that jumped out to you? I know in American history, I mean, we had waves of thinking about addiction in different ways. Anything come to mind? The, these problems that were being described in the Rig Veda and otherwise are, are, are also a story about how addiction is not, uh, only a medical condition. I think the med medical field has a lot to do to help in a way we've sort of abdicated our responsibility to help, which is a, sort of another topic that we can get to if we have time. But addiction also points toward universal human mysteries. So when you ask me about other examples, my, my mind immediately goes to Aristotle's philosophy around self-control. Hmm. And in a way, ideas about self-control were what the word addiction was about when it first entered the English language. Uh, Aristotle wasn't talking about addiction necessarily. He was talking about a phenomenon that today is translated as weakness of the will, is also translated as incontinence, which I think is kind of evocative. But it's a, it's a particular type of struggle with self-control that I think everyone can identify with, that it, it refers to doing the thing you intended not to do even though you know all things considered, it's not helpful to you. Yeah. So uh, he, he had a lot of examples about clear-eyed, it's acrasia, uh, weakness of the will, where someone with total awareness every step of the way was aware that they were doing something that was harmful that they didn't want to do. And it made me think, for example, of all the times that I had resolved to stop drinking and was reading self-help books, scribbling in my journal, posting up a calendar on my wall, just really trying to master myself. And then I would watch myself leave the door, go down the stairs, go to the corner store, buy a drink, and then relapse, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and in that sense, addiction is universal it's about the deepest mysteries of self-control it's not just about uh it's not just about some some people over here that suffer under an extreme condition i'm also struck thinking about maybe early greek times indian times how uh, one might understand a difference between addiction and devotion uh, being inextricably tied to something. I mean, in this case, I, I am hearing you talk about the aspect of self-destruction, but I, I wonder if there's any relation between the two. Oh, absolutely. And there's a great uh, English scholar, Rebecca Lemon, who wrote a book called Addiction and Devotion in Early Modern England. Mm. <laughs> it's about, it's one of the sources that I drew on in talking about addiction about 500 years ago, when it first entered the English language, being a Protestant word. 
it was a much broader and deeper and richer term than uh, it's sometimes used today. Addiction was a word that was taken up by these early, early Protestants. When I say early, I mean this is early days of the uh, Protestant Reformation where people had to hide in secret and risk being burned at the stake. So it was life or death for them. And they, they became really attracted to the word addiction because it, it was about devotion. It, it wasn't just negative. It was, it was about power, that um, you could be powerfully devoted to a good thing, like prayer mm -hmm. or to study, but you could also powerfully devote yourself to a negative thing, like, for example, necromancy. And uh, addiction in that sense was not a, it wasn't a status, it wasn't a thing that happened to you, it was an action. It was a, a sort of middle ground between choice and compulsion where there was a, a sort of voluntarily, the voluntary giving over of your will. And I, I found that so useful because that's really in line with my own experiences and with a lot of my patients, that it's not this simple dichotomy between choice and compulsion, that there, there is an element of uh, choice. And even as I say that, I, you know, I hesitated before I say the word choice because we have to be so careful about the word choice, because people dismiss addiction as if it's just a choice or people are doing it of their own regard. I, I don't think that's true at all. And that's a, it's a dangerous notion that has fed a lot of stigma. But addiction does involve an element of disordered choice, where people with addiction are not just zombies. We don't just mindlessly go out in pursuit of our addiction. There's, a, there's an element of personal agency there that also has to be grappled with to really face up to the problem. Hmm. I'd love to come back to that in a little bit, but just staying with some of this history, when did we begin to think of addiction as, as a disease? Because I think that's how we so commonly think about it. Oh, alcoholism is a disease, you know, go, just go treat it. Um, when did that enter into our understanding? I'm glad you asked about the term disease specifically, because it's a real stumbling block and different people mean a lot of different things by disease. I wrote a piece in the New York Times about being skeptical about the label disease. And a lot of people took that as a personal affront. Like mm. I was uh, questioning their reality or the way they make sense of disease. And that wasn't my intent at all. Uh, the, the problem I see is that disease can mean at a baseline that uh, something is amenable to medical treatment, that medicine has a role to play in helping folks. And that is absolutely the case for addiction. We can save so many lives by expanding medical treatment or improving medical treatment. Uh, but there's many other levels of disease that have been at various times throughout history superimposed on that more basic and defensible position. So for example, addiction, might, addiction as a disease might be taken to mean that biology is the best, that through a reductionist lens, we're going to figure it out and brain science or, you know, a hundred years ago, some sort of uh, chemical understanding is, is the way that we're going to crack this nut and finally cure addiction. And that's misleading. And then there are other notions like addiction as a disease is permanent or that all people with addiction have the same kind of addiction. And that's also untrue. We've, mm very good data uh, establishing the sort of heterogeneity and the diversity of addictive experiences. Uh, so when you when you ask, when did we start thinking of addiction as a disease? Now, I was curious in this too. And then what I found is that it wasn't one question. It was many questions with many threads that appeared in different ways, sometimes helpful, sometimes harmful, and that there was a lot of use, even just in making sense of my own situation, to to unravel those threads a little bit. You're getting at something I think that's that's nuanced and kind of hard to sit with. I mean, if when you say cancer is a disease, you go get treated with chemotherapy and you get treated through through chemicals or whatever it's going to be. But what we know about addiction is that that could be a component, but we also see things like AA or just talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, which are uh, somewhat medical treatments, but they kind of fall more into the psychological field. But I think it, it's raising this question of like, okay, well, what is addiction? How is it treated? What do we know about it? And I, I guess I, I pose the question to you. I mean, 
yes, there's got to be a multiplicity of definitions, but how now are you making sense of the word and the field in which you work? Um, I, I, I know there's a lot of threads here, but how would you put words to it? I like a really broad and capacious understanding of the word addiction. I like the way that we used it back 500 years ago when it first entered the English language, that it was a strong devotion that had some element of an impairment in self-control. So that's not a neat definition. It's not something that you could put in a medical textbook, but I don't think that medicine is the only frame for understanding this. Uh, I think there's a lot of danger if we police the the borderlands of addiction too tightly. Uh, At the end, I think it has a lot to do with self-definition and one's own personal identity. And I've seen people who have really struggled with substances and they say addiction doesn't make sense to me. And I don't, uh, I don't see that as my problem. And I would never try to force that identity on them. I think that as a clinician, it's really important to support someone's self-determination and not put my own belief system or my own labels on them. Mm. And then I've seen other people who have what might be considered a relatively mild problem. And they say, you know, I, I feel like I'm suffering with addiction. And I fully support that because in the end, I, I do think that it's universal enough that uh, everybody has the right to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even a Buddhist teacher, um, one of my Buddhist teachers said once that if you're not, you're not a Buddha, you're an addict. <laughs> and my understanding of what that means is that uh, as long as there's something in you that is impairing your self-control or you struggle with ambivalence, then you're not free of that part of ourselves that is not always in charge all the time. I think that that, that Buddha or, or Buddhist teachers would probably have quite a bit to say about the nature of addiction. I, it's something you cover. I wonder if you could just give us a little taste of that. In the West, in a particular kind of addiction advocacy, we, we've grown up with this idea of suffering as something to be conquered or as addiction as a disease, meaning a special case of human suffering. And there were good reasons for that, uh, involving trying to force open the doors of hospitals and trying to get the word out about addiction and raise compassion. And I understand the reasons for that and describe that a little bit in the book. Uh, But it is a, a way of understanding human psychology that's a bit opposed to some of these other more spiritual understandings, which I got a lot from. And my, I'm not a Buddhist teacher. It's my personal religious practice, but it's not, you know, I'm not qualified to teach on it, but I'll say my own understanding of it mm-hmm. is that I, I, I understand a key form of human suffering to be uh, what's referred to as dukkha, which is sometimes translated as suffering, but it's probably better translated as unsatisfactoriness. And so the mind clings after a way to try to make that satisfactory uh, as, a, as a sort of attachment to a way things could be rather than a way things are. And in that sense, and there are, I think I'm in good company here. There's plenty of other folks like Judson Brewer, for example, who, who then use the addiction model or description as a way of making sense of anxiety, for mm. example. Worry can be addictive. I feel it today. Uh, t- today. <laughs> feel it today today Um, that sometimes compulsively engaging in a in a a sort of worry loop or trying to predict the future try to anticipate any problem is volitional it has something to do with my own quest to manipulate reality or to make things otherwise or avoid danger uh and so I, i you know i think that the these sorts of philosophical and psychological insights are sometimes really diametrically opposed to our our western understandings which are all ultimately a legacy of uh, Judeo-Christian philosophy. So it, it really is, uh, it's worth interrogating, like what is our operating system? What is our working model of how the mind works and what suffering is? Hmm. Part of me is wondering, you know, as you talk about these different systems or histories of belief, I, I keep coming back to this idea of, of our own personal agency in in addictive behaviors, which is something you've been talking about a little bit, which is the extent to which uh, we have control over these behaviors or not. And, and I'm hearing that there can be a huge spectrum here, but 
the way that some drugs are presented to us these days, uh, like fentanyl, for example, or which could relate to the opioid crisis or, or, or other things, is that we simply don't have control in certain cases. There are things that are just too strong for us out there to handle. I, I wonder how you make sense of that or how you would kind of parse that question. Yeah, fentanyl is a great example with a lot of historical antecedents as a sort of killer drug Mm -hmm. or almost a magic drug. Uh, One classic example from the more recent past is crack cocaine. And when crack cocaine first appeared, it was described as a super drug, something that totally eradicated agency, like what you were saying, the most addictive drug to man. Uh, One researcher of the time was quoted as saying, uh, if, if my daughter could try heroin, or crack, I would rather they try heroin. It was remarkable. It's unthinkable nowadays in the context of the current uh, opioid overdose crisis. Uh, but it just goes to show the ideas we had about that particular drug, crack cocaine, which is ultimately just a different formulation of powder cocaine, uh, as if it had some sort of special agency in itself. And one thing that came up for me over and over throughout the book is this sort of demon drug idea where we lose sight of the human factors and lose sight of even the individual factors, let alone the social and economic and political and cultural factors, and put all the power in the drug. Yeah. And we have a particularly American strain of doing that, which is very strongly represented in the temperance movement when advocates first tried to uh, ban alcohol in the 19th century and came up with this idea of demon rum, that there was something special in alcohol. Alcohol was like a possessing force itself and it came in you and it did, uh, it did something to you that took over your agency and sort of zombified you. That's a really dangerous notion because especially in the case of the crack epidemic, uh, it, it served as a cover for law enforcement. It served as a way of saying, this is an individual problem and people are broken and it ignores all of the uh, social and economic and political factors that also enabled the epidemic. Uh, what I found is that drug epidemics are nothing new. We've had them for 500 years. And every time a human society has an epidemic, they tend to want a villain. The natural question is, where is this from? Or is it the bad drug company? Or is it the bad drug? Or is it something bad in the people who are using it? And ultimately, it's much more complicated than that. You know, hmm. We have to be able to think on, on multiple levels or we have no hope of... Um, any resolution here? So, do you think for you know for an fentanyl as an example um, that there really is no such thing as as this kind of demon like all all powerful drug that you know a- any person who takes a little taste of it is is addicted forever. That's that's all fictitious. Well, I know for sure that's not true for fentanyl because fentanyl is an FDA approved drug that uh, people use for pain control. Right. Uh, so there's plenty of people. And in fact, the demonization of fentanyl and opiates in general is leaving a ton of pain patients in the lurch right now, where the narrative that the opioids themselves are the problem and they are the thing that has all of the power uh, has led to, in some cases, unnecessary restrictions on opioids that leaves people with legitimate pain huh. uh, really suffering. At the same time, the opioid epidemic shows us that we need some regulation. It can't be laissez-faire. It can't be a free-for-all, especially when we have these powerful asymmetrical market forces like drug manufacturers that um, are very well documented, did awful, awful things during the marketing of opioids in the 90s and the 2000s and and so forth. Uh, So... I just think thinking across these multiple levels and being skeptical about this sort of demon drug idea while also trying to hold in mind the social and economic forces is is a way, it's maybe a path to finding a middle ground where we can be comfortable with a little moderation, you could say. If we broaden out this idea of addiction, I'm very curious in, I mean, yes, there's, there's addictions to drugs and alcohol, but but of, of course, we use the word very broadly now in our culture. Uh, for example, one can be addicted to uh, fitness or running. Um, I, I've talked about this a little bit on the program, and I do triathlons and Ironman events. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of the people I train or race against are 
would fall in this kind of addictive category. I mean, it, it's almost a compulsion. It's it's something that that kind of determines their life. But one would say it's quite healthy, no, compared to an alcohol or drug addiction. It gets people in great shape. I mean, I, I'm curious how you understand the other side of what we think of as quote-unquote healthy addictions, which can be extremely powerful in people's lives. What do you think about that? I love the word healthy because mm. that is your guidepost for making sense of the phenomenon. Uh, in the same way that those... Uh, early Protestant thinkers were that had healthy forms or virtuous forms of addiction. You could addict yourself to study in a good way, uh, but the the yardstick has to be health and functioning. So mm. maybe somebody is healthy in the sense that the resting heart rate is low, but have they blown out their rotator cuff three times in a row because <laughs> right. they won't stop doing bench presses? Yeah. I mean, there, there are examples like that. And I had someone email me the other day uh, after reading a piece that I wrote saying. I think that there is an unrecognized addiction in the community of mineral collectors, mm. that there are people who go around the country and the world collecting precious rocks and stones, uh, and some people at the expense of their finances and their families' lives, they will they will go in search of that rock. And I've never heard of this before. It's so fascinating. Um, so I could certainly imagine a sort of wholesome and joyful and connected and um, like they're just like lovely form of mineral collecting, even if it is all encompassing and somebody has devoted themselves to it. But uh, part of the reason that word addiction gets so uh, misleading sometimes is because we've had all these negative connotations attached to it. And so often the, f the focus becomes on controlling people's behavior. And so their yardstick, rather than being someone's health or functioning, is just getting them to stop use. And a lot of our criminal justice system is is run that way and addiction is used as an outright weapon against uh marginalized groups and other groups that have been uh in many cases unfairly labeled as uh particularly suffering from the wrong kind of addiction to the wrong kinds of drugs mm -hmm. yeah i mean that that has to be addressed here which is we think so commonly as who's an addict well it's just as you say it's it's over there it's on the other side of the track it's the crack addict and how closely this has been associated with people of color. I, I know it's just, I mean, this is just a major through line in, in our history. And I know something you've taken into account. Yeah. In the end, I think there are really no good drugs and bad drugs. There's certainly powerful drugs. There are drugs that are much more powerful than say broccoli or sugar. Uh, and so there are drugs that deserve our respect and our care. Uh, but this notion that they're uniquely bad drugs has often been used. That's the thing that has often been used as a weapon against marginalized or oppressed communities is, is uh, attaching a certain kind of drug use to a certain kind of bad drug user. And uh, that that notion of good and bad drugs is really important because the the problems in that formulation rebound to hurt all of us, just like other forms of racism. So a great example is in the 1950s, we're in the middle of one other opioid epidemic. We've had opioid epidemics since the time of the Civil War in the United States. But at that point, there was a really bad urban heroin epidemic. And there were massive crackdowns. Uh, it was in many ways, the height of prohibition, some people could get the death penalty for being involved in the drug trade, or even for a first offense, you could go to prison for five years. Uh, but because of that, not only was it causing massive harm within urban communities and uh, communities of color, uh, it also caused us to completely miss the boat on other problems of addiction because opiates became the model of addiction. People uh, missed the boat on, at that time, barbiturates were a really big problem. They had mm -hmm. these sedatives that are almost totally uh, forgotten today, but they, you know, they played a role in Marilyn Monroe's death and a lot of people around the time had a lot of uh, struggles. And at one point, barbiturates were the, the leading cause of poisoning in hospitals. Uh, and, and so that, that notion of a bad drug is affiliated with this racist crackdown against uh, black and brown folks actually rebounded to, to hurt white people by obscuring the dangers of other sorts of uh, addictive compounds, which in turn, not to open up a whole other can of worms, uh, became fodder for uh, industries to disguise the the harms of their products, which is another theme that's that's run through the history for decades and decades. 
Carl Eric Fisher is an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, and we've been discussing his new book called The Urge, Our History of Addiction. Carl, thanks for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. It was real. It was great fun. It was nice to meet you. Still to come, AA, race, and recovery. That's ahead on Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We'll now continue with our theme of addiction and recovery. In a program recently aired on KCRW called Color Me Sober, Can AA Evolve to Include Its Most Marginalized Members? Producer and host Shayla Martin speaks to various AA members about the growing need for recovery meetings specifically catered to people of color. Within AA, strict rules prevent a full discussion of, quote, outside issues like politics and religion. But she explains that when an outside issue impacts her and other people of color's ability to stay sober, it's no longer an outside issue. Sheila Martin is a Washington, D.C.-based journalist. She's been in recovery from alcoholism since November 18, 2012, and she joins me now. Sheila Martin, welcome to Life Examined. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. When did you begin to think about questions of diversity or race and how that all functioned within AA and the recovery community? You know, getting sober in New York, I realized much, much later that it was such a blessing and such a bubble. And I've moved a lot in my recovery. And the first time that I was scared, yeah, I'll say scared um, to go to a meeting and share what was on my heart. Um, was when I was living in North Carolina mm-hmm. and I was living in Durham, which is you know a very liberal area, but I was kind of going to meetings all over. And after the 2016 election, like right after, because I had also had some experiences in, in real life, you know, a month or two prior that were um, like unsavory as a, nice way to put it that had nothing to do with AA but I was I was scared to um you know go to a meeting and and cry about how I felt um and and say that because of all these big feelings and hopelessness that I was feeling after that election that I wanted to drink um and so I didn't go to meetings and I, I didn't go for like a month until I felt like I could you know, just like gather myself and not be a ball of tears. And I think it took me a little while to, to realize like, well, why, why did I, why do I have to do that? You know, people come into meetings and they share about their divorces. They share about job situations. They share about abuse. They share about neglect, all these things that are very very painful and it, it's like why is it that they're able to share about their pain and and I'm not and I have to um edit myself and um pretend like things are fine when they're not and that's for me that's extremely dangerous for me because that's how I drank you know I pretended like things were fine and then I drank and then things were very much not fine so um you know it was during that time that um the AA community that I was in was very, um, it was very white. I will also say it was, it was very segregated because I did start to notice that if I went to meetings in different, you know, parts of town, I could see more people that looked like me, but my community in general, which centered around Durham and Chapel Hill and, and Carborough, that area, I was in meetings with a lot of white women. My sponsor was a white woman. Like it was just hard for me to find people that shared my experience um, in a way that was like visceral. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I met a lot of people that would have called themselves allies, but you know, if, if you don't have that experience, then you just, you just don't know what it's like. Um, and so, yeah, I think after that was when I started to 
have absolutely like an awakening of my own as far as what I was, you know, paying attention to in the news and feeling like, man, this was my place where I could share everything. And now I feel like I can't. Yeah. And that just kind of started a path. <laughs> just curious, what, what would have happened if you would have just spoken very openly about the things happening culturally, uh, politically, um, mm-hmm. in those very white meetings? How, how would it have been received? I was scared to find out. But yeah. what I've seen is that, you know, so there is AA has 12 steps and it also has... Um, 12 traditions that it follows, which which are traditions that are that were created to sort of protect the the wholeness of the group. Um, they're not about the individual. But uh, the 10th tradition, which essentially states that, you know, AA, AA has no opinion on outside issues. Um, and then there's a longer form, which states that those outside issues are those of politics, sectarian religion, um, and like alcohol reform. Yeah. And um, but what I had seen is that the short form of outside issues, you know, people just would take that and run with it. And so um, if I were to speak about something that was considered to be political, it would it would be you can't talk about politics here or you can't, you know, and I was like, I'm not in the right mind to be able to handle someone cutting me off in the middle of my share or approaching me after a meeting or like, you know, whatever. Like, I think I think about that time and I was so on fire inside that like me not going was as much to protect myself as it was to protect everybody else Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so yeah I I just didn't want to be told that what I was feeling in response to what was happening in the world was an outside issue because it's it's not like if it's an issue that affects my ability to stay sober it's not an outside issue and it's no different than the other things that people share about that cause them pain that are not, you know, directly correlated to alcohol. And, and I was wondering, j- just on this, if you could explain the the relationship between race. Um, I mean, this was during, you know, the killing of George Floyd, Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter. Can you talk about how these these very, very painful subjects and happenings could impact someone's sobriety, perhaps even your own sobriety as you sit with some of those things? So I think when it comes to recovery in general, with every every person, um, and I don't want to speak for all people in recovery, but what I've heard is when you first come in, there's such a deep issue with self-worth and there's also a deep issue with shame. And people are through the practice of the steps and, and other work that we do, people are trying to develop a sense of self-worth and make peace and it, you know, with the shame that they feel over the things that we did when we were drunk and how we hurt ourselves and hurt others. And I think as a person of color, that experience of a low self-worth is even deepened because that's, you know, my experience in sobriety. Like, I mean, excuse me, in society, because I'm, and as, and as a woman too, you know, I'm always told that I'm less than, I live in a, a white supremacist patriarchal society, mm-hmm. like point blank period. And I'm constantly getting messages that I'm less than, that I, you know, have to work twice as hard to get half as far. Um, and I don't, if I'm on a path to recovery, I don't need to have that sort of messaging like reinforced by people in the rooms but the reality is is that people in the rooms are made up of people in society so it doesn't really make sense to believe that (laughs) um, the two can be separated even though I do think AA tries to make it make people accountable for their actions in a way that society does not require us to be people in recovery people of color in recovery started to realize like we need a space to be able to speak to these these issues and um you know, how it affects our addiction. Because when you start to feel extremely helpless and hopeless, you want to escape that feeling. And that's when you are more likely to reach for your addiction. Because you just feel like there's nothing I can do. So why, why keep going? You know, why try? Mm-hmm. You needed a space that you felt mm-hmm. was completely safe 
and that could honor um, all all parts of you, all the things that were happening around you. And this this led you to seeking out alternative places. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was approached by some other young black women that I met um, through you know a wide variety of AA meetings that I was going to in D.C. and it was a very, you know, hush-hush sort of thing, but they texted me and were like, hey, we're, we're thinking about starting a women of color meeting um, because we all want to be in the same space and we want to be able to share about things that we may, either may not feel comfortable sharing about in a traditional meeting. Um, and we also want to be able to talk about things that are not you know, addictions that are not particular to drinking. And so when basically we came together, um, we met twice in one month to iron out like details of the meeting, when it would happen, you know, what would be discussed. We decided to make it an all recovery meeting, which meant that we could speak about all of our addictions because a lot of people are cross addicted. You know, we could talk about food, we could talk about sex, we could talk about money, shopping, um, drugs, a lot of People in AA have um, a history of drug use, and most um, what's usually categorized as like closed AA meetings do not allow for the discussion of drug use, um, or do not allow for the discussion of you know mental health issues and and medication and things like that. And you know we're we're multidimensional people with all all of these things are connected. So we started meeting um, once a month at someone's house. Uh, January 2019, and we had been meeting for about, um, yeah, 14 months or so before COVID shut everything down. And then we put the meeting online. And again, like I said, this this was all women from like DC, Maryland area. And once we put it online, I, to this day, have no idea how it spread so fast, but it just exploded mm-hmm. um, with women, you know, all over the country. And eventually like all over the world wow so what this obviously proved was that there was a there was a major appetite for this Mm -hmm. so what do we do about this question of 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 race of being able to speak freely about the things that impact your life people of color's life within the aa world do you feel that you know the institution should welcome all all subjects, knowing how important they are. And those subjects should be, uh, there should be space to be brought up, whether you're in a very white part of the country or black part of the country. What, what do you think should happen here? Well, I think it's hard because I think AA believes that it is welcoming to all. And it is, you know, I would say the institution, the, the theory, the kind of nebulous being that is AA is welcoming to all. The The problem is, um, you know, AA is not into policing. So they're not going to, they don't even have the resources to, you know, check in on every meeting to make sure that people are having a welcoming and opening, open experience. Um, and that's a reflection of society, you know, and, and it's not just for people of color. It's you know, uh, I hate to make an assumption, but, you know, a young gay white boy in Alabama may not feel comfortable going to his local AA meeting. You know, it, it's not just, it's just that experience of, of being othered um, that brings up a sense of a lack of safety in a place that is supposed to be, or in, in theory, a meeting room that's supposed to be safe um, and supposed to carry this belief that we are all the same because we all suffer from the same the same one problem. Um, but that is not true of so many people's experiences. And I think there's a lot of things that could be done. You know, we are at a time, the big book, which is, you know, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it gets updated about every you know 20 25 years and so we're at a time where i believe you know the powers that be are, are working on the book and when i say the powers that be i mean just the general service office in new york i believe they are working on updating the book and um the first 
164 pages, which were written by the co-founders, never gets updated. But what does get updated are the stories in the back of the book that are submitted by AA members. And what we've seen over each edition is that stories do change to reflect the diversity that is this country. And, you know, maybe in the second edition, it was more stories from women. The third edition, you see more stories from people of different um, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, the fourth edition, you know, the same. And so right now we're either awaiting or, or creating the fifth edition. And um, I think, I believe they're all also doing this, but I think that if AA is more intentional about where they're seeking their stories for the book, um, that could really help because I read the stories as well. And when I read a story about someone who has a very similar life experience as me, I feel like I belong. Um, so that's that's one thing, you know, with, with the text that I think could absolutely help. Um, I know that on the individual meeting level, people have been working to change some of the language, um, even some of the general language that says like AA as a program for women, men and women with a desire to stop drinking. I know, for example, there's a meeting here in D.C. that changed that language to AA as a program for people mm -hmm. um, because there are, you know, we want to make sure the non-binary community feels included as well. Um, but all of that requires you know, it was like a voting process and submitting it to this. Like it's it's a very structured organization. But I think if, if AA could sort of take some cues from what's happening on the meeting level and bring those to the higher up structure so that it could infiltrate to other parts of the country, you know, meetings in other parts of the world and other parts of the country that may not be, um, you know, as progressive, I, I feel like that would help but I just know that the organization as a whole tries really hard to not be in a position where they're telling people what to do every I mean even even all the languages in the book as far as how to get sober is written with this caveat of these are merely suggestions like everything is a suggestion because as alcoholics we don't like we don't like to be told what to do mm -hmm. <laughs> um so yeah, it's 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 hard. There's no real like checks and balances because everything is a suggestion and everyone has a right to say, no, we're not going to do that. I've been speaking with Shayla Martin, a Washington, D.C.-based journalist and hosted Color Me Sober, Can AA Evolve to Include Its Most Marginalized Members, which aired on KCRW. Shayla, thank you for the conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And if you like what you hear, please share this episode with others. Could be friends, family, or anyone who comes to mind. You can also tweet out about our show at KCRW hashtag Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.